Hi, I'm Shane Hurlbut. I'm an ASC cinematographer, and I wanted to kind of talk to you about something. Getting started in this industry is almost impossible. And my wife, Lydia, and I, 14 years ago, created a resource called Filmmakers Academy to make it possible. We saw a lot of gatekeeping in this industry and not a lot of sharing knowledge. So we wanted to pull back the curtain, give you confidence, teach you all the necessary skills to be an amazing, successful filmmaker, and package it all on this online resource that you have at your fingertips, on set, on your phone, on your laptop, whatever it is. So we're going to give you $50. So if you go into the show notes, click the link, and hit the promo code FAPOD50, you're going to get $50 on your first year of an all-access membership. And I cannot wait for you to join our immense and immersive community at Filmmakers Academy, where we network, we share knowledge, we just bond as this huge filmmaking uh, resource to ignite your creativity and push you beyond your boundaries. I cannot wait to see you in the Academy, and let's get to the podcast. Welcome to Shane's Inner Circle Podcast with your hosts, Shane and Lydia. Happy holidays from Shane and Lydia and the whole Hurlbut Visuals team that has brought you the Inner Circle. I hope you guys and gals are enjoying a very, very wonderful holiday season. I know that my wife and I and the kids are looking forward to go to Thailand for the next three weeks, uh, starting on the 18th of uh, December through to about the 10th of January. My family and I are going to be taking a much-needed vacation. Comments to the Secret Society Facebook page and all that kind of stuff. I would love if you all would work as a team amongst yourself and uh, don't include me in any of those you know, comments or questions for this nice three-week period that my family and I are going to be vacationing. And then after that, we will be back and ready to rumble. We have a lot of exciting new posts, as well as rocking podcasts and incredible content coming your way in 2015. I look forward to connecting with many more new members as we get into this new year. Let's start. The first question, do you have a go to approach on how to maintain a certain look throughout multiple locations. One of the things I find difficult still is maintaining a consistent feel through a multi-location commercial shoot. So much of that has to do with the light quality, the color temperature that you're using. If you want a commercial to feel all a specific tonality throughout the whole thing, then obviously you're going to be shooting with a color temp that is consistent from location to location. I really don't get 
crazy with the minutiae of trying to maintain a consistent look on commercials other than whatever the story that I'm telling is engaging and emotionally connecting with the audience. If that requires me to be one tonality throughout the whole piece, then that's what I would do. If uh, it requires me to be all different tonalities to help tell that story and deliver the message to the audience, then that's what I do. Kind of a difficult question because it's really each commercial has its own story that it's telling. But let's follow with your second question, which I really like. If I may, is while I understand the necessity and the importance of location scouting, and yet I always feel, even after I scout a location, that maybe there was something I missed or didn't think about even when I scouted it. What do you usually run through on a location scout? On a location scout, I'm there with the director, and we're kind of boots on the ground, just looking at the location seeing if it works for the story, is it right for the emotion of the scene, then we start to take it apart from a technical sense. So first, the director and I will talk about, you know, what the blocking would be once we like the location. Usually you walk right in, you're like, nope, out the door, or you try to make it work because it's budgetarily working for production that we're there. You know, there's a lot of parameters that go into it. You know, you're there with the production designer, you're there with the director, with the producer, with the assistant director, and you just go through and block the scene and see what is going to be the most efficient way to go about it and how to use that location. That's what I'm first doing with the director. Once we've kind of worked that out and the location is a viable option, then I start to go into the technical aspects with the AD. Okay, when would you like to shoot this? If it's day exteriors or if it's day interiors or night exteriors, when would we like to shoot it? Where the sun is? All that kind of good stuff. I'm also looking from a technical standpoint where I can light from. I'm going to the location manager. Are we able to rig in the ceiling? Are we able to put points or wall spreaders that can create a grid up in the ceiling? What's the access to get our trucks in? Are their trucks going to be close? This is an easy load in. If I'm bringing light from a window and it's a second or third story, is there power lines? So if I'm bringing my condors or my scaffolding tower up to be able to bring my light in there, can I put the light where I actually want it? A lot of these things start to technically go through because the location scout is done without your technical team. So you have to really be not only the cameraman, but you also have to be your first AC, you have to be your key grip, and you have to be your gaffer. And you have to think about all those things that they would think about when you choose a location. Sometimes locations are beautiful for the story and wonderful for the emotion, but they will be an absolute disaster to move into, and it will take a lot of time. Those are the kind of things that you're thinking about, and then you go to the director and say, I love this location too. I think it's right for the story, but looking at the technical hurdles that we have to get in here, you might get about four hours of shooting instead of ten hours of shooting, because how 
how long it's going to take. And then if we bring a pre-rig crew in and do all that, the amount of money and time and effort. And then at that point, the director can say, you know what? This is worth it. Let's do it. Let's spend this money and we'll make compromises someplace else. And I'm like, all in. Awesome. But then there's going to be times when the location doesn't work and there is not the money to throw at it. And then the director will say, okay, let's find another one. And we work with the production designer to kind of, and the location scout to go out there and try and find those locations. Now, wondering if you miss something. I try to take as many detailed pictures that I can. Uh, I do kind of a complete surround. Like when I go into a room, I'll take the pictures that I think the angles will be, but I'm also doing surround where I'm looking at the ceiling, looking at the floor, because the floor can tell you how well the dolly will move. If we're going to do a dance floor here, shooting the ceiling, see how easy it is to rig. All these things I'm thinking of, and I'm taking these pictures when I go into the location scout. Then I come back, I look at the pictures, and it kind of starts to spark other ideas and other interests. And uh, I always have these things, what I call as light mirrors. On Terminator Salvation, I would have them all the time. I would be, you know, sleeping three o'clock in the morning. I'd wake up in a sweat, and I'd have this light mirror, and I'd call my rigging gaffer, Scotty graves and i would say scotty and i'd wake him up at three in the morning he goes oh yeah shane did you have another light mirror and i'm like yeah scotty i want to change everything you know how we were going to do this and that and that no no no. we're going to not do that we're going to come from over here and you know and i changed the whole plan up because he's going in to pre-rig that location that day so there's always things that you might have missed and light mirrors are absolutely okay as long as you have the crew to be able to help and assist you in this process. But overall, I take a lot of pictures and then run through those pictures after the location scout to hopefully come up with the ideas so I don't miss things. Next question. Hi, Shane. How do you go about working with a director as a DP? Everything from pre-production and breaking down the script, coming up with the mood, the look of the film, budgeting and choosing the right equipment for the shoot, to on-set dynamics with the relationship you develop with him or her. David. Working with the director, first off, they are coming to you to begin with. Obviously, they're the director of the project, so they're choosing their production designer, they're choosing their editor, they're choosing their costume designer, and they're choosing their director of photography. They already know your work, they already know your style, and it's kind of getting a meeting of the minds that when you come together, you start talking about the aesthetics of the film. I find that I do it on location scouts more than anything. We're sitting in a van for hours on end, driving all over the place, and I like to have conversations with the director then and there, just ideas. What if we did this, or how about that, or the style, and the mood, and the look, and all these kind of things are done, because the director, he's got so many things going on, he or she has so many things going on, that you got to grab that opportunity. And I find that the location scouting van happens to be that wonderful opportunity uh, many times. We start to have a dialogue. After reading the script, I put together what I call an emotional breakdown, which is a series of thoughts on the script, 
on the characters, what I feel their camera emotion should be, what I feel their lighting emotion should be, and just taking the main characters of the screenplay and breaking that down. I send that to him or her, and that way he or she will start to have a thought process on that, and then he or she will come back to me and say, you know, I like this, but I'm not so sure about that. You know, let's take Gabriel Muccino uh, on Fathers and Daughters. We met in Santa Monica. He wanted me to shoot Fathers and Daughters, had a very good meeting, brought my reference books, all that kind of stuff. All of a sudden, two weeks later, I'm in Pittsburgh uh, scouting locations with him. And after I read the script and did the emotional breakdown and sent it to him, he started to generate his own shot list that was embedded into the script. So out of that, I started to look at it and started to see where his shot list was headed and the idea and the methodology around it. And then I started to do the emotional breakdown a little differently and then sent that to him with a couple camera ideas on how we would pull this off. That immediately started to spark tons of conversation because I wanted to shoot 80% of the film on the movie, which was kind of a very untested device in the cinematic sense. Great for those trick shots, but nobody had really used it to do 80% of a, of a film. He really loved the idea, loved the feel of it. Uh, we quickly on set saw what that device can do very well and what it cannot, and we just exploited its best attributes, and it really made this movie very different and very visually engaging. And then and out of that, you start to work on the mood and the tone of the film. Fathers and Daughters was a very, very depressing story, so I did not want to hit it with depressing light. It was kind of seen through Amanda's eyes as an eight-year-old, what she remembered experiencing from her father. So I took that and said, okay, how does an eight-year-old see pain? How does an eight-year-old remember happiness? Well, everything's going to be a little more saturated. Let's make it a little more gold and alive because I remember times of when I hung out with my dad and we might be throwing the ball in the in our front yard and I remember back and I'm like dad remember when we were playing catch after the little league game and it was so awesome and beautiful light and setting sun and he's like what are you talking about that was like high noon and it wasn't after the little league game and it was after I got done with lunch before I went back out on the tractor and I was like what? It's like that kind of idea what a child sees and how he or she sees it through her eyes is how I wanted the mood and the tone of fathers and daughters to kind of feel. So I counteracted the emotion of the story because I felt if I had really hit it with that kind of emotion, the depressing sense of emotion, then you'd want to put a bullet in your head after you're leaving the theater. It's very alive and it's very rich and it's very golden. It's kind of how an eight-year-old would, would see this story. 
that's working with the director and tossing these ideas out and seeing what he or she responds to is part of your job. Budgeting and choosing the right equipment for the shoot, while we had a very, very tight budget on this one, we did not have money for a techno crane. We didn't have money for much of a crane anywhere. We didn't have a lot of money for Steadicam. So we really had to take this movie and really make it be the jack of all trades and master all of them. It became a techno crane. We'd put it on a crane that wasn't a techno and the head would gyro stabilize shots when we're pushing the the crane on carpet, putting the movie in a wheelchair and flying down a hallway now became like a 50 foot techno shot. These were the things that we worked discussing the look and the feel of it, what the camera motion was, and then selecting the gear based on that. And a lot of the times when you're prepping a movie, you have a base package for your lighting and grip, and that's called your production package. And then each location has its own special attributes. So you do drop loads. Sometimes your production package will absolutely be perfect for that location, but a lot of times the lighting required to do that location is not something that you have in your main lighting package. So you need to do a drop load, and that drop load comes, and then your pre-light team is able to put that in there. It's very challenging to work with your pre-rig team as well as your main unit team and making sure we're sharing lights, and sometimes we can share lights, and sometimes we can't, and then we have to order lights that are on the main lighting package, but so they can pre-rig them. So there's a lot of those dynamics that, that are going on as well. The relationship on set, I find, is very rewarding. I like to be very close to the director. I like to be in a place of right next to the monitor with him or her, seeing the performance, establishing that rapport where they turn to you and say, did you like it? And I'm like, ah, I don't know. I didn't believe him or her. Or yes, you know, I get very emotional when I'm watching a performance and I'll like do like the okay sign or a big thumbs up or all these kind of things while I'm watching it. So the director immediately can see what I'm digging on. In the workshop DVD or HD download, the illumination experience, I go through very in-depth about how I work with a director from the creation process all the way to the execution. I call it discovery. So the discovery process, which meeting with the director, talking with them, breaking down the script, all that kind of stuff to the creation. So out of those notes, now we start to put it together and I start pulling visual references and spitballing and emotional breakdowns and all that stuff that I send to him or her and then into the execution. And that's all broken down in the workshop HD download. So you can grab that if you'd like and be able to really get much more in-depth on this question. Third question, how did you begin your career as an amazing DP and director? I'm starting film school in one year and I want to focus on cinematography, but also direct in the future. Basically, I want to do what you do. Can you give me some insight on the path you chose and possible advice? Thanks greatly. Looking forward to all the Inner Circle has to offer. Eric W. How did I begin my career? Well, I began my career not thinking I was going to be a director of photography. I thought I was going to be a producer because I was good with numbers and I could convince anyone to do anything. It was a good attribute. Now I use that as a director of photography. I convince my team to do anything. 
<laughs> oh, God. No, I, I started out, I went to film school. You know, I learned some good theory. I learned some practicality. But not only in the field did I really start my filmmaking career, really understanding and starting to look at movies and get inside them and really understand the aspects uh, of that. And then I started to love film and started to love lighting and love camera. Focusing on cinematography, going to film school is a very cool thing. There's a lot of amazing universities out out there and programs that embrace cinematography. I kind of like, there's one college that I'm a huge fan of. It's called the Brooks Institute, which is in Southern California. It starts with photography first. So you understand the still frame, the composition, the exposure, and then you move into motion. Hindsight being 2020, if I knew I wanted to be a cinematographer, that is the program I would have gone for. But again, I thought I was going to be a producer, so I didn't direct my focus into cinematography when I was going to film school. It's something that I kind of stumbled onto. If you have that focus that you want to be a cinematographer, like I said, there's great schools out there to be able to help in that process. But going to school is very important and being able to focus on the theory of why we do things instead of just how we do it. When I went to Emerson College to to the film program. I was all about getting my hands on the film cameras and getting my hand on the lights and everything that I could possibly do to make the movies, make my films uh, for each class. But at the same time, the theory is so important of really understanding why Stanley Kubrick did this, why Steven Spielberg chose to go down this direction. The master's Coppola, Kurosawa, all these masters, understanding their thought processes is very important. Let's see more to your question. What's some insight on the path you choose? Out of a good film school, the best thing that happens is not only you being there and, and learning about film and, and learning hopefully about theory amongst the practical, but you start to become a great human being right? You have responsibilities. You're away from your parents. You have a, a credit card or a bank account or a checking account. You have to live with people. You have to work with others. You have to really get this increased responsibility that, that's put on you in a way that really shapes you as a good human being. And, and I think that's the main thing that college really gives people. And I love that uh, about it. Now, the advice is from this film school, you're going to create relationships. And a lot of times these relationships are ones that you will take and hold your whole life. And they spark your career. This person will get a project and then you're involved in that. And then you start to find your soul and, and your direction and your style. And that's kind of how I started. I uh, went to film school in Boston, started working at a rental house in Boston, knew that I had to go to Los Angeles to really make it. So I drove out to LA with my fiance, Lydia, who is now my wife of, of 26 years. And we based ourselves in Los Los Angeles, actually Glendale is where we landed. And I started right back at the bottom working at a rental house. All of a sudden, one day, somebody noticed my hard work and I got on a feature and the rest is history. That one feature that I got on was like my college in Los Angeles. So let's kind of put it that way for a second. So because 
all my contacts and everything that I had at Emerson and in Boston, I vaporized. I came out, started anew. This one feature that I started to work on, I started eight, six months on this movie, uh, some low-budget horror film called Phantasm Two. This summer, the ball is back. It was so much fun, but so ridiculous at the same time. And there were amazing relationships that came out of that. And to this day, it has relationships that I still have, as well as really shaped me as a cinematographer and got me into the business, into the lighting side. Brian Coyne was a third electric on Phantasm II, and he had gone to the cinematography program at USC. After that movie, he had a friend that he went to USC with. That friend got a Kiss FM radio commercial. Brian asked me to be the gaffer. Well, I was a grip truck driver on that movie. That's all I did. But he thought I was intelligent and we could be a team together. I'd never read a light meter in my life. And all of a sudden I'm on the set telling them people where to put lights and using my light meter, even though I don't know how to use it and doing everything to try and bring this radio commercial to life. Well, the next week we get Sprite, a massive national campaign. And now I'm there and it just exploded after that. It's like I started getting experience after experience and worked my way up as a gaffer, as a key grip, and then eventually as a director of photography. So those relationships that you have in school are so important to really give them the time and the guidance and really help people out a lot. I mean, that's what I found. Any project somebody said, hey, do you mind doing this night shoot? I know no pay will feed you a little bit, but all these kind of things. And I'm like, yeah, absolutely. I'm there, man. I'm going to do it. And you start to really formulate that base of relationships and helping other people out. And that goes my for you and helping and people will just always think of you. He helped me out when we were doing night shoots, when he was going to college. You know, he had all these classes, but he was still there every night. They see that commitment because you have to stand apart from everyone else. There's hundreds, sometimes thousands of people that are in a school that are all vying for the same job that you are. And how do you set yourself apart? You have to have passion. You have to have the love. You want to eat, shit, sleep this job. And you do anything to do it. I mean, I love what I do. What my wife always says, with every fiber of my being, yes, I love what I do. And I love sharing this with all of you because a lot of people don't do this. They love what they do, but they don't really share. So we're sharing with this whole process as well. And it's very rewarding, but it's, it's really setting yourself apart. Be very passionate. Just go to the end of the earth for people. Always support them. Do the jobs that nobody else wants to do because those jobs are the ones that say, God, he really, he, he or she really got in there and honkered down and really delivered. You look at Panavision's program. They have a two-year program where you sign up and they select four people each year at Panavision Hollywood. And four of my elite team members are Panavision graduates. And the first year, all you do is scrape and clean cases. That's it. You don't go out on shoots. You actually never go out on shoots, even in two years. 
You stay at the place and you learn lenses, you learn filters, you learn cameras, you learn how to scrub and clean cases like you never have seen before. The reason being is they want to see if you are committed. They want to know that you are in this for the long haul because anyone that complains or has an attitude that doesn't want to clean the cases and this is not what they signed on for, their door is open and their ass is getting kicked out. And it's very simple. And they pay you. So it's not like this abusive thing at all. It's a very good program that brings out the best. And that's, well, like I said, four, three or four of my elite team members are from this program. These are the kind of things that you need to do to set yourself apart. Okay. Question. If you could do it over, what would you do differently? I've been told that my ability to network should be as good or even better than my ability to shoot. Agree or disagree? This is a great question. If I had to do it over again, would I be a little more politically correct? Probably. Should I have gone to all the Hollywood parties and shindigs and networked with people and, and uh, massaged their ego a little more? Probably. Yeah. But I have an amazing wife of 26 years, and I have two incredible children, and my focus is when I am not working, I am back here with them. There's a lot of people in this business that just continue to be on the schmooze wagon and the brown nose and uh, just doing everything, sitting next to the director and trying to do whatever it takes to massage his or her ego. I'm unfortunately not that person. I'm paid to do a job. I'm, I deliver 180% and anyone who hires me knows that. And I have a passion and a love for what I do. And I laugh a lot and I have so much fun and my crew laugh and we have a wonderful time, even though we're very on it. Looking back, would I've done anything differently? No, I, I think the way I have pursued my career, I would have to say I should have spent more time with my family and less time working sometimes. I try to do my family first, but uh, this business is brutal. And a lot of the times the family does come second and sometimes third because you have to love yourself as well and you have to take care of yourself and you have to continue to drive yourself trying to never be comfortable and always trying to challenge yourself and mix it up and and keep yourself uh, alive is is very important as well saying that i've been told that my ability to network should be as good or even better than my ability to shoot i don't know so much your ability to network work should be good, but your ability to, to uh, shoot should be better. I'm not all about this flash and pan stuff that, that everyone is networking and telling everyone how good they are, but you got to have the proof is in the pudding. You got to have the street cred to back it up. All right. Question six, Shane, what's a good way to make crop marks on your DSLR? Well, on a Canon 5D or Mark II, Mark III, I think any of the uh, the cameras, there's a focus box 
that uh, pops up when you go into live recording mode. If you take that box and you push it all the way up to the top of the frame, the bottom of that box is the perfect 235 top line. Then you take the box and you push it all the way down to the bottom of the frame, and then the top of the box is the perfect bottom of your 235 aspect ratio crop. That's the way I've done it, and I put little quarter inch or eighth inch tape, or I've even marked it with a grease pencil with a ruler and just take a white grease pencil and mark it across there. You can always wipe it off. The tape is what we used on Active Valor, and that really stuck very well. Obviously, that hack that Magic Lantern has done has all the frame lines that you can put on there. So there's that you can use as well. So that, but this is a very no nonsense, very DIY way that I created my 235 uh, aspect lines on Active Valor. Question seven. What is some questions you ask a director when starting a new project to get the feel on what their vision will be? Thanks, Sean. This one, again, is addressed in the HD download in the workshop. So if you are able to afford that HD download, I go into very much depth on this process. But it's very much on what I've talked about before is asking questions on the location scouts. I read the script. I go into the emotion of each character. I do an emotional breakdown. Fathers and daughters, it's what Amanda was feeling. Amanda Seyfried's character, where her headspace was, where Russell's headspace was, what that camera should look and feel like, that camera emotion, what the lighting should feel like. These are all these things that after reading the script eight, nine times, I'm starting to formulate these ideas. And then I talk about it or send an email to the director for them to kind of look at and see if I'm in the right direction. They immediately will say yes or no, or yeah, I like that, or no, I want to go this way. And you start to get an idea of where he or she is at with their whole process and, and the look and feel of it. And I pull a ton of scrap, which is, you know, out of magazines, out of reference books, off the internet, to be able to show him the style and the look and the feel. And these are things that I've also assembled in a full keynote presentation after reading the script. So there's a lot of prep that goes on even before you show up on location and start to have this dialogue with the director. It's really taking it upon yourself and coming in with a point of view and delivering this look and feel and, and scrap and uh, emotional breakdown so you can then start to have this conversation with the director. And by doing that, because I find a lot of directors, sometimes they don't know what they want, but they know what they don't want and don't like. And the minute you start throwing ideas out, they're immediately going to say, oh yeah, I don't like that. Oh, but this is quite cool. That's how I go through that process. Okay. Hello, Shane. I've always seemed to stumble over the simple things. One question I have is, what way do you get the subject to look when doing an interview? If you're doing a Kickstarter video, do they look directly at the camera? Thanks, Guatam Narang. I always find that when you're doing an interview, it's not good for your 
interviewee to look directly into the camera. I would put yourself either to the left or to the right. What I try to do is if I'm on the right side of the camera, camera right, then I'm lighting that person from the camera right side as well. They have a nice downside to the camera. But looking off either camera right or camera left is, I think, more genuine and more real. When you start to look into the camera, it's kind of that fourth wall being broken. And I think it becomes a little cheesy. So it worked very well in Ferris Bueller's day off. It's not something that I would do if you're doing a, this Kickstarter video or a documentary. If it's something where you really need to address the audience, like what I did for the Inner Circle video, where I'm talking directly to the audience in regards to convincing them to go on this journey as the Inner Circle, then yes, absolutely. You want to be talking directly to camera and you want to engage with the audience. But from a documentary standpoint, I think either camera right or camera left is a good way and close to camera. So their eyeline is still very intimate with the interviewer, and you can get into those eyes. They're so important for really evoking the emotion of your interviewee. Number nine. Hey, Shane. Thank you for the amazing first post about shaping light. I'm a Steadicam operator and a first AC based in Beirut. I just finished film school. My question is, if I want to enter the U.S. market, I know it's hard and there's a lot of competition there. Should I do a master's in a film school there, or is there another way around? Maybe try to go for a month there and start talking to production houses and rental houses for jobs. Many thanks for the priceless information. What I suggest for any person that's not from America doing a master's program in the United States at a film school. Absolutely. Because out of that, you are going to formulate these relationships that I talked about on question one or two. These relationships are going to be with you for your life. You know, if you show, set yourself apart, work very hard, have the passion, love what you do, and really get in there and always help and always be there for people, you will start to formulate these amazing relationships and you will get into this business very quickly. This is what I did. I started in 1986, the fall of 86, and I was working on my first feature film in 1980. 88, and I was a key grip in the fall of 88, and I started gaffing in the spring of 89, and I started shooting my first music video in 1991. It moved very, very quickly, and I started out as a grip truck driver. These relationships are absolutely essential. And finding a master's program, whether at AFI or any of the USC or wherever you can get into, is the best way to go about getting into this movie business and being able to create. Question 10. Hi, Shane. I have so many questions asked throughout these podcasts about camera and lighting, but one of the most important questions I have to ask right now is career advice. I graduated from college with a BS in digital filmmaking and video production. About two years ago, I've been working within a market marketing department ever since doing in-house video marketing. I have learned a lot since I began my journey in this industry, and I wanted to know if there was any advice you could give to me on how to expand my career to one day get into production work for nationally broadcasted advertisements. I also have another question. All right, well, let's deal with that one for a second. And this is coming from Eric. 
I've kind of talked a little bit about this in, in other podcasts, and I've addressed a ton of it with this. You know, getting into the business and you want to know if there's any advice you could give to expand my career. Expanding your career to be able to work on national spots. I do, even now, I'm doing local spots, national spots. I'm doing a mixed bag of everything commercially because I'm going from feature and then I shoot commercials for a little while, then back to features. I think the biggest thing is is trying to create those relationships that I d- talked about, getting out there and, and shooting as much as you possibly can, as well as studying the masters to understanding why we're doing all that we do. This, this is a difficult question of how you're asking it. So I'm, I'm doing my best to try and, you know, you've obviously gone to film school. Uh, you're working in this market department. You're shooting some videos. You want to kind of break out of that and, and start shooting national spots. Again, trying to set yourself apart as a director of photography, getting your demo reel all dialed in so you can really show people who you're about, who, what your what your soul is as a filmmaker. I tended to do a lot of spec spots, commercials that I would write or one of my director friends would write and then we'd go and shoot it because I knew the cinematography would be really good and the story was a cool idea. So generating those spec spots, if you don't have the national commercial work that you're looking to get, getting these spec spots that really perk the interest of director saying, whoa, that's an amazing spot. I really like that will help in that process. Let's move on to your other question. I'm looking into building my next camera rig. And I've heard some good things about mirrorless cameras like the Sony A7S and the Panasonic GH4. What's your thought on these cameras versus cameras like the Canon 5D Mark II, the Blackmagic Cinema Camera? Thank you very much for considering my questions. Regards, Eric. Well, we've kind of gone from from career advice right into cameras, which is good. All right. Kind of cool. The Sony A7S, I have not found a space in my shooting repertoire for that camera at all. The GH4, nope. I haven't found a use for that camera either. Uh, what's your thought on these versus the Canon Mark II or the Blackmagic Center camera? Well, the Canon 5D, you pull it out of the bubble wrap and that thing looks cinematic. You pull the GH4 out and you got to do about 400 things to make that camera look cinematic. The Blackmagic Cinema Camera is a very good camera. That camera is a great testing ground for cinematographers. I wrote a, a very detailed blog post about this camera being a great testing ground because it really educates you on how to use a light meter. It reacts very much like film and kind of back in the days of how I started out uh, my first music video were all shot on 16 millimeter and understanding that sensor size and the crop factor and and being able to get things a little better in focus than with a full frame DSLR. There's a lot of cool things about that camera that are exciting as well as its amazing latitude. And it also is difficult to color correct and it really teaches you how to color correct if you can color correct the black magic and really dial that camera in you're getting very good at what you do and uh, again awesome training ground question 11 hi shane i'd like to know about the methods you use and the approaches that you take when breaking down a script does your process differ much from project to project and do you have any advice that you could offer on this topic that you've learned along the way Kind regards, Will Walquist, Australia. 
The reason I'm answering this question again is because I've you know, been asked this question three or four times throughout this podcast. And I want to continue to tell you that breaking down the script is done pretty much the same way each time. Starts with what I call the discovery process, where you talk to the director and you get the ideas of what is in his or her head. And then it goes to the creation process of you kind of going through and finding scrap and visual references and everything that you can kind of convey your style and your look and your mood. And then out of that, the execution process. This is really detailed in the workshop HD download with the Illumination experience. It would take a whole podcast to go into the idiosyncrasies, but I think I've done enough to understand through all the other questions of how I break that script down with emotional breakdown and everything else to kind of tell you how I have gone through that. So I hope I've answered it through the other questions above Will. Hi, Shane. Love your passion and eye for great cinematography. Well, thank you. Uh, I'm a film student from NYC. I would really hope to be a DP someday. What would you suggest I focus on most of my time on and energy on in the current situation of the industry? Thanks, John. I think it's going out there and experiencing life, looking at architecture, looking at light, researching what the masters, the theory behind who they are and why they do things. Just look at a ton of movies and study movies. You look at Quentin Tarantino. That guy didn't have any real formal education. He just was a video clerk at like a blockbuster. He just watched movies day in and day out. And this guy is one of our greatest directors. I mean, I love his style, his scripts. I mean, I just think he was brilliant to begin with. And him just sitting there studying the masters from movie to movie to movie only made him better. Really studying the masters, getting out there and looking at composition and shooting. And, you know, a lot of times I just take stills before I'm doing any motion, just stills and the composition, the framing and what that frame really evokes emotionally and what just a tilt up or a tilt down or a pan left after a pan right does. So these are, are very, very cool things to, to focus on and obviously creating those friendships and just trying to do whatever you can to get on any project possible to just get as much experience as you can in this amazing business. Final question. Hi, Shane. I'm trying to shoot an action scene, a bare fist, no holds barred street fight between two guys. I haven't started shooting, but I'm trying to put it together on a storyboard. No matter what I try to do, I'm not getting the intensity I want. I'm trying to achieve a raw, bloody feel to it, and the fight is to be brief with one guy going down. Could you explain a way in which I can achieve this? Thanks. Sir Hari. I would say that most of the time, these fight sequences, I really lay on the responsibility of my stunt coordinator to understand where the best angles are to be able to see the action. I think a handheld is a great way to create this intensity of getting on the right side so you can sell punches so the camera is on the same side as the punch. You never want to be on the opposite side of a punch because you want the fist to go in and actually cover the face 
face. So it looks like he's being hit. And then the person snaps his head or behind to be able to sell the the punch and shooting across. Breaking down a a fight, I think, can be a mixed bag of, of getting their intensity. There's also POV shots where you're like in the fight and you see your fists in front of you and a very immersive point of view angles as well. If the one person you want to make as a hero, low angles are awesome to do as well to make that person more heroic. If there's a person that's not so heroic, you know, shooting down on them will minimize their power. Making the camera as interactive and as immersive as possible, getting it in there. Think about you want the audience to be punched. You want them to feel like they've fallen on the ground. You want to make them feel like they have been beaten senseless. So these are the emotions that you want to take if it works for the story to be able to go down that road and really put the audience in the fighter's shoes and and experience it and experience their journey, their pain, their abuse is very important to the immersiveness of the sequence. And this is what achieves that raw quality. Well, this concludes our hour-long podcast on the Inner Circle for December. I want to thank all of you for an amazing 2014. It's been an incredible, I think we used August, September, October, November, December. So five months of content that we have generated for the Inner Circle. There is so much more coming your way. And I want to thank you for your commitment and your support and do whatever you can to spread the word. Thank Thank you again and have a wonderful holiday. If you're looking to challenge yourself, if you're looking to become a better filmmaker, as well as being mentored from 30 years of experience, go to shanesinnercircle.com. Knowledge you can trust, people that care. That's exactly what happens in our loving global film community of shanesinnercircle.com. Hi, I'm Shane Hurlbut, and I'm an ASC cinematographer. And my wife and I have created this incredible resource called the Filmmakers Academy. And we'd love for you to download and rate our app. If you're a filmmaker, do yourself a favor and download the Filmmakers Academy app today. It's available wherever you get your apps, most notably the App Store, Google Play, Amazon App Store, and the Roku Channel Store. The app includes everything on the platform for all access members and from content to community and coaching opportunities, everything you need to master your craft. So download the app. And this is the most important part. Be sure to rate it. Rating us really helps us spread the word and enhance our rankings in this dedicated app store. So if you love what we're doing, this is a way to show it. Together, let's take your career as a filmmaker to the next level.